Hello, welcome to the GID podcast series. I'm Paris and I'll be speaking to my fellow designers about the pressing global problems that keep them up at night and the clever and creative ways they're trying to tackle them. Hi, welcome to the third episode of the GID podcast. And today I have Sophie Horrocks, who's going to be talking about her projects and Sura. Sophie is a human-centered designer and researcher. Her work's driven by the principle that human quality of life can be improved through intuitive and inclusive design of environments, interactions, and interfaces. So Sophie, welcome. Hi. Um, <laughs> hi. I'd love for you to tell us a bit about your background. How did you get into GID? What was your story? Um, so I, I actually came, my undergrad was actually in textile design. Um, and so I, after doing my bachelor's degree, I moved to Hong Kong um, and worked for a sort of um, uh, design, textile design lab, where we sort of worked on um, interactive installations, uh, projects to do with sustainable materials and textiles. Um, but from that, I was interested in looking more at um, how to apply these sort of skills in material design and the tactility of understanding our material world and apply that to um, more contexts within healthcare um, and looking at actually how you can um, improve health and well-being of humans through the skills that I actually already had. And I, I started a couple of research projects in Hong Kong um, looking at the neuropsychology of um, material interactions and that was sort of what I was interested in exploring more in GIPD. Cool, I love how casually you say it, move to Hong Kong. <laughs> um, I forgot to say but Sophie's from the UK so it's quite a big move. Uh, and talk more about your project in GID, can you give us a bit of an intro to what Sensora is? Yeah, um, so essentially it's, it's kind of an extension of this idea of looking at the neuropsychology of experiences um, and interactions um, as it kind of looks at the design of perception itself. So um, it, it basically was a project I started about uh, in my first year of GID, um, looking at uh, how to improve experiences for blind and partially sighted people. Um, and that was kind of stemmed from people who I met in my first year of GID. Um, and through uh, my travels around the world, I sort of continued this research um, and met a load of people um, in Tokyo and uh, New York who also are blind and partially sighted. And the, kind of the common theme that kept coming up was actually that navigation is the biggest problem. Um, and, and so Sensora looks at how you can actually uh, design in an inclusive way uh, um, an improved method and means of, for independent travel. Uh, for this population, um, looking at kind of both indoor and outdoor spaces. And so it's a wearable device that connects, well, could connect to uh, an external system of uh, embedded sensors in the environment uh, and looks at how you can tra uh, kind of detect, uh, process, and then feedback visual information in the environment through spatial audio and tactility. Cool. I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Um, I think it's so nice how your like background in textiles. So I know absolutely nothing about textiles, but I think it's so nice how you've kind of taken that background and then applied it in like a social impact context, and then applied it with technology, and then you've got to wearables. And I think it's just a really nice story of like the thread throughout your time at GID. Um, mm. Why did you decide to focus on this demographic? Like, what was it in particular about the challenges they faced that you found interesting? Um, well, I think it was 
I, I guess it was this interest in terms of how I've always sort of been fascinated in terms of how the brain processes processes information and how mm-hmm. sort of sensory channels communicate within um, with one another and how you can actually uh, I, in terms of like sensory substitution how you can actually replace different sensory channels with one another um, but I think then that was kind of an interest um, mm-hmm. and then I think when I met I met a lady last year who um, was saying that she actually didn't have um, her, she'd been blind since birth um, mm-hmm. and she was saying that uh, she because the only way that she had to remember her children when they were little were through photographs mm-hmm. um, and because she didn't have access to that photo, like photographs that her family did without mm-hmm. having the audio description of that um, sort of physical memory yeah there was no way to remember her children when they were little other than kind of instigating her own memories in her mind mm-hmm. um and so I guess for me that just sort of opened my eyes to the inaccessibility of the world um and actually there's you don't necessarily need to design something completely niche for this user group by designing something that benefits uh blind and partially sighted people you can actually create uh kind of enhanced experiences for everyone and not just this user group. And I think that's where the interest sort of became in, in looking at multi-sensory experiences and how that can benefit inclusion. Mm-hmm. I think um, accessibility is such an interesting area and so eye-opening. Like it's something that you don't think about unless you have like this accessibility need. And I think like when you take time to think, okay, how could you convert this type of information into a different type of sensory information? Um, like there's so much to be done um, and I yeah. know like the tech space is trying to move forward into that and some companies like the websites have to have different accessibility um, access points and things but I think there's definitely so much more work to do um, so yeah. your project it has so many different facets of um, like skills I guess so your background was in textiles but then obviously it's a tech product and then you've got things about psychology like who's in the team who are you working with uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I actually, the the network in which I've ended up working with has grown as the project's grown <laughs> um, quite enormously. Um, so, I mean, I've ended up, I work quite closely with the Thomas Pocklington Trust, who um, is a charity um, supporting blind and partial sighted people, and I run a focus group there and then sort of continued working with users throughout lockdown um, of the people who I met there. Um, I was also working with um, the Next Generation Neural Interfaces Lab at Imperial, mm-hmm. um, and so a lot of the project uh, became looking at actually detecting this information, and they do a lot of work with radars, so I was working with them to look at um, what, I mean, as much to aid my understanding of mm-hmm. this technology as much as to kind of like progress the project. Um, and then I've also ended up working with musicians, um, com- computational designers, and sort of looking at... Um, also sort of infrastructure design and actually the kind of future mobility um, and kind of non-visual navigation. Mm-hmm. So it's all got a bit, yeah. Yeah, lots and lots of <laughs> different people. The team's getting bigger and bigger. Um, I think that's one of the privileges of uh, GID of having like the Imperial side, which is also the techie, sciencey stuff. And then yeah. the Royal College of Art, which is like more naturally what maybe you were used to before. Um, I know some of your projects in Hong Kong were also like uh, collaborating technology with fashion. 
Like, have you found it difficult to go into the tech space with this project or was it something that you're already familiar with? How have you found that? Um, I think it's, I, I feel like it, I definitely had experience in working um, kind of cross-disciplinary before, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a very different thing when you're doing it on your own and you're sort of maintaining those relationships and um, when there's there's no other bridge mm -hmm. to kind of um, translate types of information, you kind of have to learn the language that other people are speaking mm -hmm. um, in kind of in terms of uh, specific technical information, whatever else. Um, mm -hmm. And I think learning learning as much about how to communicate with people who view problems in a very different way to myself has yeah. been as much as the journey as anything else I guess because I mean I, when I started working in even in music I realized that it's something I'd never worked in before um and I just it really I really struggled to understand the language to communicate yeah. with people when it's such a like intangible thing yeah. um I think there's so much to say about um like terminology kind of gates us into these categories because if someone's speaking in a different way than you are you think that you're not on the same page when you probably are but you're just using different words to describe everything um and I think your project is like an indication of the somebody with like an arts background or textiles and fashion you can venture into this tech space and you actually contribute a lot to it um not to put you yeah. on the spot but like what do you think you bring to that team that like wouldn't otherwise be there if it was just kind of like tech and eng focused yeah i mean i think this has been one of the biggest what well the biggest thing that i've had to learn through gid is i think i very much suffer sometimes from imposter syndrome um, <laughs> and you kind of I, I, there's been moments where you're kind of sat there like oh my god what am i doing <laughs> like how is a well, coming from a knitted textile background, why am I working in this field? <laughs> but I think, to be honest, I think I have seen, I think recognition from other kind of more technical engineering people, them seeing the value in what I'm offering mm -hmm. um, has given me the kind of confidence to feel that I am actually bringing a lot to the table of something that I, I probably otherwise wouldn't have recognised. Um, and I think my value probably lies in the fact that um, I think I've, I bring a much more human-centered element to it and mm -hmm. by listening and kind of empathizing with users and learning how to integrate that perspective alongside the sort of rigor needed to develop a project of um, kind of value, I guess, and kind of relevance as well as rigor um, has been something quite important to kind of figure out, um, which I think I'm starting to achieve, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think it takes... Um, courage to be like okay I have a voice in this conversation and then once yeah. you get used to that and comfortable doing that you realize that you have certain facets that they don't and they have certain facets that you don't and that's completely fine um and you can achieve much more by kind of uh having conversations together and like debating your different perspectives um so back to the project more specifically where are you yeah. testing it where's it at now like what's happening where is it in the process uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean at the moment I, uh, I I'm figuring out the next steps, um, yeah. and I think there's um, it's definitely what I'm going to be taking forward beyond JD. Mm -hmm. um, but I think at the moment uh, there's a lot of conversations um, going on with various people um, that I feel like I, yeah, I'll, little sort of seeds yeah. potentially growing. But, um, yeah, 
we'll have to see where they go. Podcast <laughs> exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Name no names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do you have any interesting trends to share or exciting things happening in the space at the moment? Um, well, I think one of the interesting things that came out of uh, the research that I did with, with kind of wider stakeholders was recognizing um, how actually the design of um, audio is becoming far more dominant in the future sort of design of uh, urban environments. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is one aspect that um, would be really interesting to take forward and understand more about is the kind of psychoacoustics of designing sound and how that relates to your experiences in the world um, beyond that. And I think in terms of looking at autonomous vehicles Mm -hmm. and the kind of violence of future cars, um, how that relates to how you experience that mode of navigation. um, I think that's quite an interesting, I found with what I'm doing, there's been a lot of overlap with Mm -hmm. um, autonomous vehicles, which is something that I didn't expect to kind of find. but there's definitely this kind of relevance of, um, yeah, the, the psychological nature, I guess, of designing these future modes of um, navigation and uh, mobility, I mm-hmm. guess. And the, so I think there's definitely different layers to this. It's like the consumer layer, but then there's industries and then there's um, like public services. Who do you think um, your kind of products are appealing to? Is it more of like consumer facing or do you think you want to work with the industries like the automobile industries or where do you kind of see yourself or who's the best stakeholder to work with? Uh, yeah, but this is kind of what I, I mean, the, the research that I've done so far, there's, there's essentially been interest from all of the people that, that are kind of different stakeholders cool. that you mentioned. And so, I think it's, yeah, it's about figuring out the best route at the moment to see who, where can the biggest impact come from and mm-hmm. um, which is the best way to develop it forwards from that, um, mm-hmm. from where it is now, I guess. Um, and I think there's, yeah, it's a multifaceted thing that mm-hmm. it's about focusing, I guess, now which bit is the right bit to take forwards. Yeah. Um, do you have any insights in terms of like a global perspective I know obviously like the health industries in the UK versus for example the US like I know quite a lot of tech like med tech companies maybe venture into the US because obviously they have a lot more private healthcare and things like that um yeah and you've obviously spent time in different countries looking at these sorts of things like do you have much of a global opinion or um perspective on this project um I mean, I think the research that I did while I was abroad definitely kind of um, recognised that this is definitely a global problem. And I think also not just in terms of um, for blind partial sighted people, but for a wider audience as well. Um, But I think in terms of which, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's, um, yeah, I I think it's an interesting sort of, question yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah I don't know too much either I just know from working like in the public sector space sometimes it's really hard to um get people to make like big steps towards 
your projects or your products or kind of venturing into that space. And so private sector can be easier to step into if you can get funding. But then it's like, where do you have more impact? I would say public sector, but um, I think it's a tricky one when you're trying to sort of develop products that have social impact. So yeah, I, I don't have the answer either, but I think it's um, interesting. <laughs> no, but yeah, you're definitely right. And I think the, a project I did in New York actually, that, that became apparent, it was with a charity in the Bronx. Um, and that was very much public sector. But again, it kind of, um, brought about all these issues of uh, kind of funding and widespread sort of impact and how do you do that when you're limited in terms of resources and funding and everything else and um, yeah I think it's a definite point of interest to look at the balance between private and public um, and see what the best way, way forward is I guess. Yeah I think it's um a conversation that we're all having in GID. Like we have really um, user-centered ideas and projects and products, but then when you want to kind of take them further than a research level and you have to start thinking more about like commercials and the business around it, that's when it's like, mm. oh, but I really just want to do everything that's best for the user and this problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a huge challenge, but it's exciting. It's a different step in the project. Yeah, um definitely. cool so are you open to people contacting you if anything resonated with them or they want to maybe partner or find out more about your projects yeah definitely amazing yeah. um so where can we find you where's your work is there anything publicly or your personal instagram or your portfolio anything like that that you want to share yeah i have a website is probably the best cool. uh means uh to do so um so that is just sophiehorrocks.com and that's that. <laughs> cool, amazing. Um, and we can add the link to the description as well so that it's nice and easy for people to find. Um, cool, okay. Thank you so much, cool. Sophie. I think that's all. Thank you for joining Lovely. us, even though it's super hot outside. And I'm sure you have lots of other things to be doing. <laughs> okay, bye. All right, bye. <laughs>interesting episode thank you so much sophie accessibility is something that we should all be considering in the work we design um next up we've got naomi who's going to be talking about food sustainability make sure you give our other episodes a listen to there's 11 in the series if you liked our work and you're interested in what we've been doing at gid make sure you check out the rca virtual show the link is in the bio uh, once again thank you for listening my name's paris you can find me at paris Arno Shea on instagram and I hope you enjoy the rest of the series.